And so, Father, this morning, would you whisper to us? Would you help every ear in this place discern between a whisper of deceit and falsehood and incompletion and the whisper that comes from the lips of God? If I'm not careful, I mix those whispers up and I hear what I want to hear and it makes my suffering greater. And so we need help this morning. Come and meet with us. Come and meet with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, uh, in chapter, in Job chapter 25, Bildad is swinging and missing at some advice. And uh, he, he's saying, look, look, Job, let, let, me, let me say again what we've been saying from the beginning. In fact, if you'll look at verse 4, it's the crux of Bildad's advice. Verse 4, chapter 25, how then can a man be right in God's eyes? Now, before we just move on and think that this is some old story and some, uh, you know, uh, for another day, this is the question that your heart and my heart should be running to and wrestling with all the time. Here's the question. Can you be right in God's sight? That is a profound question. Now, it's recycled... And I say it's recycled because if you look back at, at chapter 4 and uh, the, the first time one of these counselors has come to Job, chapter 4, verse 17, Eliphaz, if you want to see it, you can turn there with me, he asks it this way, can mortal man be in the right before God? And so, in essence, uh, Job is out of patience with these counselors, and we're going to see that in chapter 26 when he says, look, Bildad, who's writing your material? You, you, you're, you got one note, and you keep singing it. You keep saying the same thing. Can a man, can people be right in God's sight? But his answer is profoundly discouraging, because here is what Bildad is saying. No. No human can be right in the sight of the living, all-powerful God. If you look at chapter 25, verses 1 through 3, here's, here's one reason why he says you can't be right in God's sight. He's too lofty. He is too high. He is transcendent. He is unapproachable. He's up there in heaven. You can't get to him. And the proof of it, Job, is the fact that you continue to suffer day after day. God is not in your life. So if you look at chapter 25, Bildad the shoe, <laughs> excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, verse 2, dominion and fear are with God. He makes peace in his high heaven. And so in essence, he's saying, look, God's way up in heaven. He's got shalom up there. But down here, you've got no shalom. And so you're separated from God because he is so far above you. 
He continues on and, and says, look, uh, in verse 4, how then can a man be right before God? Here's a second reason why man cannot be in right in God's eyes, according to Bildad, the bad counselor. Because God is too high and because man is too low. You, you got no hope. Look at verse 5. Behold. Now, we're going to come to that word again in a few minutes. Okay, but I want you to get, he, he's taking a moment and he's saying, stop and look at this. The, the sun and the stars are not even bright enough to bring God honor and glory. Man has no hope of glorifying God. This is his theology. This is what he's thinking. And this is what he's saying to his friend in his hour of need. Verse six, do you know your worth? Job, while you're alone, while you're struggling, when you're suffering, when no one stands with you, here's what you're worth, verse 6. How much less is man worth than the stars and the sun? Job, you're like a, you're like a maggot. And uh, the son of man, anyone who's born of a woman, you're like a worm. You're nothing. And you are separated from God because he is way too high and you are way too low. And in fact, he says, uh, it's the very wisdom of God and the power and the strength of God which makes this so. You're separated from him. You're separated from him. That's some bad counsel. It's rough. But do you know that there are some people in this world who feel that today? And you know what happens is a counselor comes and emphasizes one characteristic of God and lets it lay out there as if it's everything. Is God transcendent in his heaven? Yeah. He is unapproachable. He is holy. Is man totally depraved in our sin? We are. We are. But can I just really encourage you today that nowhere in Scripture where God teaches us about the depravity of man, nowhere is it the end of a sentence. It's not an exclamation point. The end of the sentence. Here we are in Genesis chapter 3. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And the, the ma- mankind, Adam and Eve, go and they eat of it. And they, and they sin and they knowingly transgress against God. And the end of the sentence is not, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. The end of the sentence is Genesis 3.15. I see you in your sin, but here's a promise to take to the bank. I will send one who will take away all of your guilt. The wages of sin is death. I will send one who will die in your place. Satan appears powerful and crafty. I will send one who will crush his head. And Satan will rise up and bruise the heel of the one that I send. But the end of the sentence is not the depravity of mankind. And so if you're getting advice that makes God seem far away, transcendent, and if you're getting advice that is 
piling on the negativity of your brokenness. It's time to shake that off today. It's time to come to the word of God today. It's time to listen with both ears and not emphasize one characteristic that is true about God without understanding the fullness and the wholeness of what scripture teaches us about God and about mankind. And before we move on, can I just say one thing? You need to hear this. The advice that Job is getting from Bildad in his day is not advice you're probably going to hear today. In his day, he heard from Bildad, God is transcendent and in his heaven and unapproachable, and you can't get to him because you're so bad. But you know what? Advice has a way of being wrong and swinging past balance and going to a new imbalance. And do you know that we live in a world with imbalance today that says God is everywhere. He's easy to access. He's all around you. You don't have to look very hard for him. Take it easy. Don't search him out. And by the way, when you look at your own behavior, you're not that bad a sinner. God doesn't care if you sin. Live how you want to live. And so the advice that Job got of God being transcendent and unapproachable and our sin being such a breach and so great a divide has swung into our world today. And in our world today, we have the opposite. Take it easy, no problem. Everybody universally goes to be with God. He loves everyone. He approves of everyone's life however they want to live. Both of those sets of advice should be rejected. We should reject that. We come to what the scriptures teach us. And we come to this place where we understand that Bildad, being a bad, bad counselor, needs some advice. And he needs the advice to come from the word of God. And that's where we get then, and again, uh, just a, a reminder uh, uh, that the uh, emphasis of Bildad in chapter 25, Job is tired of it. And it's, again, it's recycled. He's heard this all before. And so here he is, out of patience, and he says in chapter 26, verse 1, Then Job answered and said, uh, How you have helped him who has no power. And in essence, what he's saying there is, You have given advice to somebody who is in the midst of suffering, and it's made their suffering worse. You have, uh, he says then, How you have saved the arm that has no strength. And you, he, he's saying, You have taken what little strength I had to fight the battle here, and you've, you've removed my motivation to pursue the Lord. That's what bad advice does. And incidentally, it's something we should keep in mind that bad advisors have in common. Bad advisors will, um, will all remove our motivation to pursue the Lord. We'll, they will characterize and generalize about God to the point that uh, we won't have an accurate picture or understanding of him, and therefore they will sound religious and yet be completely wrong. Young people especially... When you have someone coming to you and emphasizing a characteristic of God and saying, now that's my God. My God is love. My God is grace. 
My God is simple. My God is accepting of all. My God, and, and we emphasize this one area, we need to be careful that we don't just take that and say, now I'm going to base the rest of my counsel and, and the, the hope for comfort on, on that one characteristic. We've got to come back to the scriptures. And that's our, our first point. Our first point is this. While we suffer, we are right before God. We're right before God when his word is the source of our help. In chapter 26, Job is saying to Bildad, listen, your advice is really stinking up my life. And again, he's saying, who writes your material? This is, this is recycled stuff and it's poor counsel. How you have counseled him with, with no wisdom. And look at verse 4. With whose help have you uttered words and whose breath has come out of you? That word breath there, it reminds me of the Newer Testament. Where in 2 Timothy chapter 3, God's word says to you and me, all scripture is God-breathed. It's God-breathed. It comes from God himself. And in essence, Job is saying, what I've heard from God, what's been God-breathed, that's not what I'm hearing from you. What's coming out of your mouth, Bildad, is insufficient. It's not balanced. It's not complete. Bad advice. Bad counsel, while we are already hurting, it makes the sufferer weaker. There are moments when we can endure the bad counsel, but again, Job has had enough and, and is not ready to endure this counsel any longer. And so here's what Job does. He confidently rejects generalizations about the character of God. Do you? In the midst of being alone in the pit, while you suffer, someone comes to, to provide for you spiritual or religious advice that emphasizes only one characteristic of God, and Job is ready to say, no, that's not enough. That's insufficient. He's ready to say that, though he's alone. He's ready to say that, though he is absolutely, he has lost everything. He is broke all of his children have passed away. These counselors have come to provide advice for him and he didn't invite these counselors to come. They are in his face and he graciously, for the most part, he's, he's, he's tired of them now, but, but he rebuts what they have to say with the truth of God's word. He knows scripture. And so, in essence, what Job can say to his counselor is, this crazy trouble that I'm experiencing does not prove the absence of God. Can you say that? You know what rattles our confidence in God's word sometimes? is suffering. And I think one of the reasons is because we're, we're young and we develop our thinking about God or we develop our theology about God in a place of good, easy, comfortable living. And so here we're developing what we think about God and then we get to a straight. Then we get to a moment of suffering. And all of us, when we get the hard news, when we get the bad news, start to go, wait a second, am I doing something wrong here? Did I do something wrong here? Now, I want to emphasize two things here. In Job, we go back to Job 1.1, and we know what God thinks 
of Job's character. God thinks and, and, and puts a, a label on Job. Job is blameless. And so what Job is going through is not the result of some foible or problem in his character. But can I just, can I just say to you and me, don't be so quick to see your life as equating perfectly with Job's. Most of the time when we are in a pit, we don't know for sure that it's not because of some character issue in us. Don't be so quick to assume that the problem or the suffering or the trouble you're in might not be connected to, to you. And something. Now again, I'm not here to confuse you and I'm not here to, to, to point blame on you, but I am here to say that if ever there is a time to evaluate, it's when you're suffering. And you evaluate, okay, what did I bring to this situation? Did I add something to this situation? And I put uh, three examples here. When, when you're experiencing guilt... If it's a general guilt for things in the past, you can put that to rest. That's not from the Lord. The Lord doesn't hold you accountable for things you have confessed to him. But if, it's, if you have guilt in your life because you sinned against your spouse or you sinned at work last night, that is a grace from God for you to challenge your heart. And so constant friction in a relationship should be a statement to you. Okay, what am I bringing to the situation? Don't assume I am blameless at all times and therefore everyone else is to blame. If all of us, guys, if all of us think that, we're going to be in trouble. As a church, as a, as a, a uh, marriage, you're going to have trouble right? Okay, so uh, if I experience guilt, I should confess any known sin in my life. If I'm experiencing chastening, that is the discipline of the Lord, well, we should go to Hebrews 12 and love the word of God and let the word of God be our source. And Hebrews chapter 12 verse 6 says, the, the, the son that God loves, he disciplines. God's going to discipline you as he receives you into his fellowship. He's going to transform your character so that you're more like Jesus. Could be that you've got consequences in your life because of relational shortcomings or sin. Mistakes you've made in the past and those consequences uh, will remain in your life. So all that to say, when we suffer, we're right before God as we don't let the counselor come and provide imbalanced view of God, but we go back to his word. What does his word say? What does his word say about consequences? What does his word say about guilt? What does his, the word of God say about forgiveness? The word of God is clear to us and it is our strength and we can reject bad counsel even in the midst of our suffering when we know the word of God. We know the word of God. Okay, so while we suffer, we are right before God when his word is the source of our help. Number two, while we suffer, we are right before God when his wisdom is the foundation of our thinking. God's wisdom needs to be the bedrock 
on which we build everything. And we get that from verses 5 down through uh, verse 10. And so here we have Job, who's like, who's like saying, okay, look, Job, excuse me, Bildad, you're telling me that um, God's wisdom and strength makes it impossible for man to be right in his sight. And I'm telling you that the only thing that makes it possible for man to be right in God's sight, the only way that's possible is because of the wisdom and strength of God. God's wisdom is awesome. And his strength is on display for the world to see. And so Job is making the case here that it's the wisdom and the power of God that's the only thing that can make you righteous. It's not the thing that prevents you from being righteous. God knows with certainty every mystery about life and death. Are you mystified about life and death? I am. Have you ever sat with somebody while their, their body stops working? And you can watch in a moment who they looked like and the the personhood and the lifeblood in their face goes out and they don't look at all like they once looked. How does God bring the soul to be with him? How does he separate the immaterial from the material body? How does he do that? Well, that's what verse 5 says. The dead tremble under the waters of their inhabitants. Sheol is is death. The land of death, there's no mystery in the land of death for God. He knows exactly what's going on when the last breath is breathed in a body and the immaterial is separated from the material. How does God make life in the womb I don't know. How does he bring cells together? And when he brings the cells together, he puts a soul in those cells. It is a a miracle. And this should put us in a place where we are saying, God, your wisdom in this world surrounds us. We can't get our brains wrapped around how you know everything and there's no mystery that has you up at night wondering what happens. In the spirit world right now, there are spirits and there are angels and there are demons and they are all exactly where they should be. God knows exactly where he sent his angels to do his bidding and God knows where Satan has demons uh, uh, deployed to do his bidding. He knows where every one of them is at this moment. The spirit world is not a mystery to God. It mystifies me. When I think about the mystery of that world and set my mind upon it, it scares me. But when I realize that in God's beautiful, all-powerful, amazing wisdom, nothing scares him. And nothing is outside of his control. He appoints the moment when a soul separates. He sovereignly reigns over angels and demons. He separates believers from unbelievers at the judgment. He does all of this with power. That's what verses 5 and 6 say. There's no mystery that keeps God up at night. And you, in the midst of your trouble, the greatest thing you can do 
is not so much uh, uh, go down into the theological, you know, information about God's eminence uh, uh, or God's uh, uh, highness over us and man's sinfulness. Set your mind on this, what you see. God is all-powerful and he is all-wise. Uh, God knows with certainty every mystery about creation in the cosmos. See verses 7 through 10? Uh, look at verse 7. He stretches out the north over the void. Now I want you to keep in mind, Job was written about 3,500 years ago, and about 3,500 years ago, Job wrote this in verse 7b. God hung the earth on nothing. He knew that. What a picture. Well, what did he do? Did he, did he put the foundation of the world on his hands? Or did he hang the earth on nothing? Here's, here's the point. At the beginning, in creation, God wisely orchestrated everything about this earth, this cosmos that we live in. Verse 8. 3,500 years ago, he binds up the waters in thick clouds. So he knows about the evaporation of the water and he knows about the heaviness of the water and he knows that the clouds innumerable in the heavens and in our skies are, are filling up with water at the beck and command of God and that they hold the heaviness of the water with certainty and waterproofness without leaking until such a time that God rips the bottom out of the, the cloud itself and allows the water to fall back to earth. He's describing the strength and the wisdom of God. And Job is saying, it's not the wisdom of God that makes it impossible for man to be right with him. It's the wisdom of God which should motivate us to pursue him when our life is full of suffering because it's the wisdom of God that makes us right before him. And we see it in the created world. Chrysostom and Cyril wrote down, and, and I just, I was, I was reading the church fathers on this passage this week and just amazed at some of the things that they wrote. Chrysostom, uh, third century church father wrote this, fourth century uh, church father wrote this. Who is there that must not feel astonished and amazed at these things and confidently pronounce that they are not works of nature but of providence? Can I just encourage you? Here's something that'll help you in your suffering. When you go outside and see the beauty of God's world, don't talk about nature. It's not natural laws that are sovereign over God. It's God who is, who is sovereign over the natural laws. And so he has, he has definitely made nature a place that is to be restorative to you when you suffer. And we go out and we observe how can a lily, white as the day, and a tulip, yellow as can be, fed by the same water and earth, and yet they are designed by God to do their thing. Chrysostom goes on, Therefore one speaks thus, Who hangeth the earth upon nothing? And another observes, In his hands are the corners of the earth. And again, he hath laid the foundation of it upon the seas. And these declarations, though they seem contrary to one another, yet have the entire agreement that God has placed the foundation of the earth on his very hand, and yet he hangs the earth on nothing. 
And to this day, we don't know how he hung the earth and hangs the earth on nothing. And it stays exactly where it ought to be. We can talk about laws and magnetism and, and uh, we can talk about uh, all of the, the laws that we see, but those laws are simply laws because they're the way God has worked when he hung earth in its place. They ought to have felt astonishment, says Cyril. They ought to have felt astonishment and admiration for God when they see the sun and the moon the well-ordered choirs of the stars, their unimpeded courses and their risings of the seasons due to each. Some are signs of summer and others are signs of winter. How some mark the season for sowing. And aren't you so glad that some, some mark the season for spring? It's still coming. And then a a man sitting in a ship and sailing in the boundless waves without sight of any land can look up and see the stars and steers his ship by looking at the stars. For these are the matter that scripture says and let them be signs for seasons and for years, not for fables and astrology and nativities, but because God has dubbed it and deemed it to be so. Who is the father of the rain who hath begotten drops of dew who condensed the air into clouds and bade them carry the waters of rain. What should have been the effect of these wonders? Should the creator have been blasphemed or worshipped or worshipped rather? And so far we have said nothing and noticing the unseen works of his wisdom and the great wide sea therein the things creeping innumerable in the sea, things we have yet to discover in the depths of the sea. Who can describe the beauty of the fishes that are therein? Who can describe the greatness of the whales and the nature of the amphibious animals? Devote your life to understanding and looking at the things that God has ordered in this great world of his and let that minister to you in your hour of suffering that God has all the wisdom in the world. And he isn't letting you suffer without applying his wisdom even to you. He sees you. And he knows you. And he cares so, so deeply for you. He stretches out the north over the void and he hangs the earth on nothing. In verse 9, he covers up the face of the full moon and that's a reference to his, his throne. The word moon and throne in the Hebrew are very similar and it's a play on words. He covers up the face of his throne and spreads uh, over it his cloud. And he's inscribed a circle. Here's uh, how he finishes his view of, of nature. And he said, you know what else? There's a circle that takes place at sunrise and at sunset so that we have a gradual movement from light to darkness and from darkness to light. That is awesome. God designed it to be that way. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. And so while you are suffering, friend, there is nothing that should bring you greater comfort than to know that God's wisdom is is applied to you. He's not distanced from, he's in, and he's working out his plan to bring honor and glory to his name. While we suffer, we are right before God. Thirdly, when, when his power is the reason for our awe. Now, if you're like me, When you get bad news, the reason for your awe 
is the bad news. I take a moment where I'm afraid. I take a moment where I'm adjusting to the negativity. I take a moment where I do a gut check and ask myself, did I do something wrong here? I take a moment where I ask myself, if God is for me, how can this problem be against me? It seems like it's against me. And some of you this week have gotten hard news. You're in the midst of suffering. You're, you're fighting. You're, you're trying to overcome. Maybe you're not quite ready to embrace the, the, the realities of God's power. But we need to get to the point where it's not the problem that produces awe in our heart, but it is the power of God which produces awe in our heart. God is all-powerful. And one of the reasons why we can endure suffering is because he is all-powerful and our trouble is not the all-powerful thing. In his power, God shakes the pillars of the mountain. Do you see that in, in Job chapter 26 and verse 11? The pillars of heaven tremble. And the, the concept of the pillars of heaven, I believe that, that that's referring to mountains. God shakes this world. Yesterday I was doing a, uh, I was doing a, um, a wedding. And at a certain point in the wedding, the whole room, there was a thunder clap over the, the sanctuary in this building, and the whole building shook for a minute. And I could feel it beneath my feet. God is all-powerful, and he sends winds that are high, and tornadoes, and, and, and they do what they are intended to do. God is good, and he is over every uh, power of nature. Okay? And so in his power, God shakes the pillars of heaven. In his power, can I, can I tell you, sufferer, that in his all-powerfulness, God, God hasn't forgotten you. Y your suffering is not all-powerful. God's at work. God sees you. His wisdom is complex and his power is all-powerful and he is at work and he is not using his power against you today. When he shakes the earth, it's according to his will to bring about his purposes. When he shakes my life, it's according to his will to bring about his purposes. The coming and the shaking of the earth will... will uh, will be to gather the faithful to himself. And in his power, do you see, he continues on. He doesn't just shake things up. Look what else he does in, in verse uh, uh, 11. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. Verse 12, by his power, he stills the sea. That's what he does with his power. I'm reminded of Isaiah chapter 40 and we have this picture of God's arms, all powerful and what does the good shepherd do with his all-powerful arms? But he comes to those who follow him and, and claim him as God and he lifts us up in his arms and he draws us near to him. And with his all-powerful arms, he comforts those who belong to him. That's what he's doing with his strength. Comforting and bringing hope and help. In his power, every foe will be vanquished. Sufferer, trust him. Trust him. 
while even religious counselors will be simplistic and too generalized, that will steal your strength and steal your motivation to trust the Lord. And when you can't make sense of what God is doing, set your mind upon the greatness of his majesty and the wisdom of his strength because he does do all things well. He does all things well. Now, we need to take a little aside before we wrap this up. Here's the aside. Job has just spent an entire chapter lecturing his bad counselors about this truth. But it's not in his heart yet. And maybe that's where you are. You say, well, what do you mean it's not in his heart yet? Well, here's what I mean. 16 chapters later, when God shows up, even as Job has just said to Bildad, where were you when God laid the foundations of the earth? When God shows up in Job chapter 40, he looks Job in the eyes and says to him, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Maybe you're at a place right now where you're suffering and you know the true information in your head that we should look to God's wisdom and we should trust God's power. But today, you need somebody in this room to help come and filter it down deep in your soul so you can embrace it in the midst of your person. You need an experience with God himself. And that's exactly what was happening to Job where he kept saying a bunch of true information and he kept letting his counselors know that he knew the true information and that they were wrong. But at the end of the day, when God shows up, it's the very, it's the exact point that God makes to him. This truth that my wisdom is sufficient for you and your suffering, it hasn't boiled down into your heart yet, Job. This truth that I have all the power in the universe to, to do what I will do, it hasn't impacted the way you're living your life yet, Joe, because you're still asking these same questions. You're still on it. You still don't trust me. And friends, if, if church is about anything, it's about you and me coming to the point where our friends help us to filter this information down into our lives so what we know to be true in our head is lived out in our attitudes and actions the way we interact with one another. And so Job needs a little bit more time, and he also needs a personal experience with God. God is good. When he hears you say true things, and he knows it's not real yet in your heart, he comes closer. And he calls you to work it out. And he gives you an experience so that you can know that he, he does have all the wisdom in the world. And he does have all the strength to help you. And so now we get to the conclusion because here we go in verse 14. Verse 14, it's my favorite verse in the whole passage. Now if you look at verse 14, it starts with a great word, behold. And that word means this. Let's all just stop for a minute and turn our eyes to this one place. Now, if you look back at chapter 25, do you see verse 4? Chapter 25, verse 4, Bildad the bad counselor, excuse me, verse 5, in chapter 25, he said, behold, let's all stop and look at the stars and the moon and see that they don't even bring God the glory that's due his name. And it's as if Job is saying to Bildad here, okay, okay, you want to behold something? 
We're not going to behold how the created world is insufficient to bring God glory. It's sufficient to bring God glory. Let's stop and let's behold this. When we get this, when we love this, when we think about the, the way that God has made this world and how there is no mystery that confounds him, when we think about the fact that, that he is all-powerful and we even go to the point where we know that he's going to act on our behalf, behold, take a look at God because in that moment, that's just the outskirts of his ways. It's as if you have arrived in the country of God and you are on the, the far-reaching borders of his country. And as you get closer to him, you're going to see greater things. And you're going to hear his voice louder and louder. And, and look what he says about how small a whisper we hear from him when we get it. When we get that he's at work in our trouble, that's a small whisper. When we get that he has the power to overcome our suffering in this world, and he is good to us, that's just a whisper. Man, the loud thunder of God's glory is going to be heard. And you know where it's going to be heard most significantly? Jesus Christ. When God says, do you think that the majesty of my wisdom separates mankind from me? Oh, no. I'm sending Jesus Christ and Jesus, God himself, is, I'm going to place on him the guilt of humankind and he's going to pay. He alone is going to pay the sin debt for people. When we see the greatness of God and how strong he is and what he is all about, we see his wisdom in Christ Jesus and then we see his power because his power is displayed to us when Jesus rose from the dead. Death didn't have the final word. Life has the final word because God has the final word. God has the final word. He raised Jesus from the dead. He is all-powerful. And if you can hear his whisper in the wisdom, and you can hear his whisper in his strength while you're in trouble, look to the cross. Because that is where chapter 14, verse, uh, the, the very, or, excuse me, chapter 26, verse 14, the thunder of his power. Who can understand that? No. The wisdom and power of God does not separate mankind from God. The wisdom and power of God in Jesus Christ unites us to him. And that is the whisper and the thunder of God's glory. Let's stand and be dismissed together. Lord, in your wisdom, you know, and in your power, you do. Would you help that none of us would emphasize one characteristic of you and get ourselves tied to some unhelpful direction, but instead to come to your word and see that in it, you are all wise and all powerful. And we need your help today. Would you help the one who's really hurting today hear a whisper, a whisper of help from you? And would you help the one who's afar off today be totally engaged by a loud thunderclap from you that mankind can be right in your sight 
because of your wisdom and your power in Christ Jesus. Dismiss us from this place today, Lord, with your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.